may be remain standing for the reading of God's word. Thank you. All right, today's reading is going to be off of Malachi chapter 3, verse 7 to 12, and it reads, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, How shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions, you are cursed with a curse. For you <laughs> are robbing me of the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine to the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. <laughs> you may be seated. Good afternoon. I hope that y'all are doing well. If you're new or just joining us, my name is Marco, and I serve as the preaching pastor. Thank you, Tony, for that. In the event that you didn't hear him, we're going to find ourselves in Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Uh, as you open or load your Bible, let me just give you a quick update as to where we are in Malachi. And so if we include today, we got two more weeks uh, in Malachi in this wonderful series that we've been in for the last five weeks. And uh, we're going into Advent thereafter, and then the year closes. So... Pretty crazy. Uh, things are going by really, really fast. Uh, if you heard Tony, it's, this is a famous passage. Uh, I know individuals that have never read Malachi, but they know this passage. And so uh, let's just dig into our time. Once more, we're going to be in Malachi chapter 3. We're looking at verses 7 to 12. By way of story, I remember when I purchased my very first laptop, not a hand-me-down that I got from my brothers or that I paid my brothers to give me, uh, but my very own. I was running my own small business and had finally saved enough money to go all out on a MacBook Pro. And this was around 2011, and for the next 10 years, that thing traveled with me everywhere that I went. It was my workhorse. It went with me from everything from business to ministry to projects. Uh, I put some miles on, on this MacBook. And when the pandemic hit, uh, my son still, uh, my son really wanted my laptop because to him, it was, it was a tank. And interestingly enough, he saw it as like one of the perfect things to be passed down to him, uh, which, which was cool. Um, <laughs> and so Everett and I, if you don't know Everett, he's actually walking down the aisle. So, man. Um, so Everett and I get together and what we end up doing is, or what he ends up doing, I should say, is that he ends up upgrading all of the parts on this MacBook. Everything that we can find to upgrade the MacBook so that Chungle could get it, we did, to make it stronger than it was before. And then, about two weeks after we get the whole thing uh, upgraded and supercharged, someone breaks into my truck and steals my MacBook, along with my Bible. 
Rebecca and I were out of town, and I remember sitting in our Airbnb, like wanting to cry over a really dumb laptop. And it wasn't so much because of the laptop, it's because it was something that I really wanted to give Seth, because it was something he really wanted. And I know that I could have, like, we could get him a different laptop at a different point, but it was just like the principle of it. And at the same time, I realized that I was really angry because I felt like my space had been violated. Right? Someone came into my truck and stole my stuff. And, uh, and that, I mean, that really upset me. Have, have, has anything ever been stolen from you? Like some of you have like way worse experience than a measly laptop, right? But if you have ever experienced that, the feeling is similar, right? It's a terrible feeling that you're left with. Someone else's sinful motivation has hurt you. It's grieved you. You feel like invaded and you feel angry. Well, in today's text, if we're going to attribute that human emotion, this is how God feels toward Israel. He's angry and grieved in that Israel is stealing from him. And while we're going to dig into the context in a moment, God addresses tithing with Israel. And as I mentioned earlier, this text is very popular among uh, many preachers, and many of you are probably familiar with this text as a result. Now, a few weeks ago, we did a series on generosity through 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And one of the things that I told you was that we're just going to tackle the topic of money like we tackle everything else. In 2 Corinthians, we learned that Paul wants the Corinthians to grow in this uh, uh, act of grace as much as they want to grow in everything else, from faith to earnestness to love and so on. And so to be clear... Even though we're going to tackle money, even though the text is about money, it's not entirely the focus of our time. But if you're kind of relieved at that, like, oh, great, not a sermon about money, you're not technically off the hook, right? So uh, I hope that didn't bring too much relief to you. But with that being said, um, as we go into this text, let me just give you a little bit of an update as to where we are, some encouraging news, if you will. Some of you have been at the members' meeting, some of you have seen the videos, some of you are walking through the membership process currently, and you're like, what, what, what's going on? Currently, giving in our church is up 10% as compared to last year, and that is huge because that has allowed us to further the gospel in a variety of contexts whether it's in the planting of community groups, the raising up of leaders within community groups, church planting as we continue to support efforts in Mexico, uh, local partnerships with the school district, uh, your generosity has allowed the gospel to advance in all of these different areas of life. And so that's a big, big praise. You can clap if you'd like because that's a really, really big deal. That's your generosity, right? Now, <laughs> Right, that wasn't forced. And so when it comes to 2024 as to what we're looking ahead, right, we're hoping, praying, we're budgeting for an additional full-time position. And so um, for the last seven years, I've served as the only full-timer on staff. We've had interns, we've had part-timers, but we're also looking, praying, hoping, and budgeting for a full-time position for another pastor to come on staff who could devote their time to other areas of ministry that, frankly, have grown and have outgrown me, which would be extremely healthy for our church. We want to invest more in church planting, and we'll talk about that another day. 
The whole point is, man, God has been so good to our church. And so if you're here and you heard this text, and like, we're talking about money. Yes, we're talking about money, but this isn't a scramble. This is a series. All right, here we go. So here's the reminder for you. Here's a reminder. Generosity is a reflection of a heart that has been shaped by grace. This is a similar main idea that we looked at in 2 Corinthians, and we're going to look at it once more in this text. Generosity is a reflection of a heart that has been shaped by grace. Let me pray, and then we'll look at our text this afternoon. God, we just want to begin by praising you for your goodness in this season. As a result, let us, let us turn to you. Let us give you our, not only our attention, but our hearts. <clears throat> In that, Lord, would you give us grace to receive your word? Would you give us grace to change, but only on the account that you have changed us first? You have given us a new heart. And so, God, as we examine your word and as we turn to you, Let us be reminded that we do this for our comfort, we do this in our conviction, and we do this with hearts that have been redeemed to ultimately worship you. And so we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're gonna look at three things this afternoon. Here's where we're headed, here's kind of our map. We're gonna be looking at disobeying God, disregarding God, and then finally delighting in God. Disobeying God, disregarding God, and then finally delighting in God. Beginning in verse 7, as I mentioned, if you're just joining us, Malachi is a book that we've been walking through for the last five weeks. And here, God is confronting the heart and sins of Israel. In this book, the structure is set up with six accusations where God makes an accusation or makes a claim toward Israel. Then Israel challenges God's accusation And then God responds by providing Israel with the proof of his accusation. And in verse 7, we're given the context of God's fifth accusation in this book. So here we go, verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Right? And he continues, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So here's the accusation. God accuses Israel of disobedience. Israel has turned away from the Lord's command, from his word. They have forgotten his work, his promises, and his goodness for them. Their hearts have grown, as we've examined over the last couple of weeks, they have grown apathetic and indifferent, and as a result, they're walking in disobedience. They're living in sin. Yet verse 7 also shows us that in his kindness, God gives them the solution to their disobedience, and that is repentance. Repentance. We need to understand something about repentance before we move on. Repentance is always defined with a change of mind. In the New Testament, we see that the writers associate repentance with a changing of our mind, which leads to the changing of our actions. This change of mind is the result of a new heart. In other words, why can the Christian change their mind? Why can the Christian turn from their sin and turn toward God? Why can the Christian change direction? Because of God's work in them through Jesus, because of a new heart that has been given to the Christian. 
And this is what God is calling Israel to do. He's telling them, hey, in your disobedience, repent. I have saved you. I've loved you. I still love you. I'm calling you to myself. I will draw near. Remember the verses that I told you that are kind of the linchpin of this book. It's the first five verses in chapter one where God, rather than bringing conviction or confrontation, brings covenantal love. And he says, I have loved you. And so here it's an extension of that through his kindness in repentance. God continues by adding, I will draw near to you. What does that mean? Return to me and I will return to you. It's similar to the story of the prodigal son where I think most of you are familiar with it. But in the event that you're not, in the story of the prodigal son, there's this, there's this son who wants his inheritance from his dad. And so he asks his dad for the inheritance and his dad hooks him up. Takes the inheritance, leaves town, and blows all of it. And in shame, goes back, he returns to his dad. And you could imagine what that process must have been like for him, walking in shame and guilt. And I asked my dad for my inheritance. He gave it to me. I blew it. I'm ashamed. He's probably ashamed of me. Maybe he'll treat me like one of his servants. It's better than what I've gone through. And so we read in the story where <clears throat> as the son makes his way to, the, to his dad's house, he sees his dad. And he begins to walk towards his dad, probably in shame and guilt with this weight on his shoulders. Do you remember what the dad does? He sees his son and he runs after his son. You are my son. I have loved you. Welcome home. Let's hook you up. Let's throw this big old party. So when we see here in Israel, when God says, hey, return to me and I'll return to you, God is ultimately saying, hey, I'm going to run toward you. Turn away from your sin, and I'm going to be running towards you because you are mine. You've always been mine. You're not turning away from your sin so that now you would belong to me. You've always belonged to me because I've always loved you. God passionately pursues his children, and repentance is always a kindness extended to us, just as it was to Israel here in Malachi. So a quick summary, God accuses Israel of disobedience, right, from turning away from him, his law, his commands, their desire in him, and in his accusation, he extends kindness by calling them to repent. And now we see Israel's response or their challenge to God's claim. <clears throat> Here it is, the second half of verse 7. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? It's at this point where we could be pretty familiar with Israel's posture and their rebellious hearts, right? You, you, could, be doing, uh, you could be reading this, and they're asking, how shall we return? You're like, no, I guess. How shall we return? As if, as if God hasn't been there the whole time, right? He, he just told them in the previous verse that he does not change. Therefore, his commands have always been the same. The heart, the posture of Israel in their challenge. How shall we return? Israel's challenge is an attempt to delay obedience, to delay repentance, as we'll see in a moment, they're challenging God's claim because things aren't going well for them. 
Right? God says, return to me and I'll return to you. And they're ultimately saying, but things are terrible. How are we going to do that? How are we going to return to you? Things are going wrong economically and agriculturally. What are we going to do? And I want to park here for a moment. So here's the question for you. When God calls us to repent, when God calls you to repent of your disobedience, do you delay? Do you delay? Uh, do you delay obedience? Do you delay repentance? Is it because you're gripped by your sin? Is it because you want to justify your decisions and God's just going to have to understand why you made certain decisions? Do you delay because something else, frankly speaking, has just shaped your heart apart from God? Randy Alcorn says it this way, to procrastinate obedience is to disobey God. <clears throat> Once more, Israel displays their forgetfulness of God's character, his work, his promises for them. So Israel makes this challenge, and now God responds, beginning in verse 8. So God says, will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Verse 9, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Oh, man, here it is. Here's that verse. So, yes, we're going to talk about money. But we need to recognize something, okay? Two weeks ago, when we see God accuse Israel of, of their faithlessness, he uses examples of men divorcing their wives to go and marry women of a, of a foreign god and also intermarriage, right? So, so he uses that as an example. Those two things were happening, but he uses them to display, to show them their faithlessness. That's similar to what's going on now. God is accusing them of their disobedience, and one of the ways he's going to show them their, their disobedience is through tithes and contributions, or the lack of. This is just one example that God chooses among many to reveal to them their disobedience. He could have chosen whatever he wanted, but here he chooses tithes and contributions. And we'll look at why in a moment. <clears throat> but before we get into that, think of it, right? God can choose any number of examples to prove this disobedience, and he chooses money. All right, back to the response. So God responds to Israel by telling them, hey, you're robbing me. Right? You think your circumstance of crops not growing is leading you to disobedience. No, the result of your disobedience is this curse. To Israel in Haggai, here, here's what God says. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag of hole, with holes. So whether it's in the context of Haggai, right, right as they got back to the promised land, or here in Malachi, Israel is struggling because they're all in it for their personal gain. They're neglecting God's law. They're neglecting God's house. And rather than seeking his glory, they're seeking their own. 
And so when God says that there is a curse, that they are cursed, it is a result of their posture. And when he says the whole nation of you, that you've been disobedient, all of you, he's making this this, uh, inference that you look like everyone else. There is no distinction between Israel and everyone else. And so in our disobedience, think about that. There's no distinction between you and the unbeliever when you live in sin. When you're walking that living lifestyle, when you're walking in disobedience, there's no distinction. And so here God tells them, if if you repent, if you change your mind and your actions change, I'm going to bless you. Right? Tithe, and I'll bless you. In fact, I'm going to open up the windows, and man, all of heaven is going to fall out for you. Now, this is the part in the text where we get nervous. And you might get nervous because usually there's some preacher, preacher who's wearing alligator shoes and is having a hard time holding them down. And he says, see, in this text, you know why you're not blessed? Because you're not giving. You know why life is hard for you? Because you haven't been giving. You know why this is happening? You know why God doesn't love you as much as you think? Because you're not giving. See, if you give, if we read the text, if you give, he's going to hook you up. Verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing, and then there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Oh man, what do we do with that text? Well, first, that is what he's telling Israel, (laughs) right? He is telling Israel, hey, tithe. If you give, put me to the test, tithe, and I will bless you. But it's equally important to recognize the context. That's what some preachers don't hook you up with, right? Rule one of interpretation. Context, context, context. Who is God speaking to? When is he speaking to? So that's the first thing. It's equally important to recognize the context. Second, and we're going to dig into this verses. Second, and before we continue, let's not forget the purpose of what we've encountered so far. Israel is walking in disobedience, and God calls them to repentance, not so that they would be loved, but because they are loved by God. Repentance is the kindness of God toward those who belong to him. Your circumstance is not justification for your disobedience. Moving on. So so Israel disobeys God. Now let's look at Israel disregarding God. This is where we get into the context. What exactly does this passage mean, and how does it work, and why does it matter for us today? All right, here we go. So what did God say? Tithe, and I'm going to bless you, right? Cool. First thing we need to recognize, the first thing that we need to remember is that God is speaking to Israel as they are under the Mosaic Covenant. This is the law of God given to Moses on how his people were to live, worship, and obey God. 
Additionally, this blessing that Israel has been given is already theirs. They're not having to work for it. What they're experiencing is the consequences of their sin. That's what keeps them from enjoying this blessing. This is what keeps them from drawing near to God and, and enjoying God altogether. An example here is when God uh, liberates, frees, redeems Israel from slavery under rule of Egypt. Do y'all remember the story in Exodus, right? So God redeems Israel, and then he promises the promised land. I'll hook you up, man. Milk and honey all day, right? <laughs> from Egypt to the promised land, it was like a couple weeks uh, uh, time. How long did it take them to get into the promised land? Here's a Bible quiz. 40 years. Was the land never theirs? Well, it was theirs. But in those 40 years, what was Israel doing? Regularly disobeying, disregarding, distrusting God. It wasn't that the, the gift wasn't theirs. It's theirs. It's hooked up. But man, your, your sin <laughs> keeps you from enjoying me. And so once more, Israel here is thinking, see, God doesn't love us. You want proof that God doesn't love us? Our crops are dying. We're experiencing devastation. And Israel thinks they're justified in their disregard of God because of their circumstance. So what's the purpose of tithes and contribution? Well, let's define both. Tithe literally means a tenth. All right? And this was part of the law by God given to Israel, that they were to tithe a tenth of all that they got. Leviticus 27. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. Additionally, in Deuteronomy, even though he talks about the tithe, he is reminding Israel of who it all actually belongs to. Deuteronomy 6. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you with great and good city, cities that you did not build, with houses full of all good things that you did not fill, cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It was so that they would remember that God was good and that it would drive them to constantly further uh, grow in their trust and dependence on God, that he would deliver on his promises, that he would never let them go without lack. When it came to a contribution, it was something on top of the tithe, an additional offering, an additional uh, piece of giving, right? It's just something extra. Now, here's the purpose of them. There's many. We're going to cover three, right? The purpose of the tithes, the purpose of tithes and contributions, number one, went to the priesthood, right? It would go to the priesthood. We could say it this way, that it supported the ministry of the priesthood. They would receive the people's tithes. From that, they themselves would tithe, but that money was used or that, that, that tithe was used so that they were supported. Additionally, 
the tithe went to relief to the poor, the marginalized, the sojourner, the stranger, the one who's uh, oppressed, the fatherless, the widow. In, in, in God's uh, law, he made it a point to make sure that those individuals were taken care of, and the tithe went to make sure that they were taken care of. Another reason for the tithes and offerings was celebration. Here's how one, this is not on the notes, but here's how one theologian says it. A feast together in God's presence and with God's people is a fitting and appropriate way to celebrate God's generous good gifts. So in some of their rituals and some of their celebrations, it was to remember that God is good, that God is abundant, that God is generous. It was meant to generate a deeper amount of trust, deeper dependence. But here in Malachi 3, Israel is withholding their tithe. Israel is withholding their tithe, and the irony is not only does God say that he's going to bless them by withholding, they're actually depleting their resources and worship. Once more, Matthew Harmon says it this way. This is kind of a lengthy one. I'll go slow. By defunding their priests, they silenced the spiritual instructors, instructors and public worship that intended to remind them that their economic alienation flowed from their spiritual alienation from God. By defunding the tithe, they undercut the safety net structure, uh, structure designed to assist those stuffing, uh, suffering extreme poverty. They were unwittingly starving the very mechanisms to alleviate their own poverty by defunding the religious and social structures that God had provided for their spiritual and material enrichment. That's the irony of all of this. God says, hey, when you give, man, you will be blessed. You will have abundance. You will have every, there will be no need. There will be no need. And so from them, with them withholding, it actually depletes them of the way they were meant to be taken care of and the way in which they were to depend on God. So what does God do? He invites them to test him. And he's making the first move, right? He's the one initiating. He's the one pursuing. He's the one who has not changed, so he challenges the people to test him. If you want to test me in any area, do so right here. He's inviting them to test him. Give your tithe, and I'm going to open up the floodgates of blessing. You will be taken care of. Your, crop, your crops will be taken care of. You'll have food. And as you delight in me, the nations will look and see what true delight really is because you have become dependent on me. And so that was the purpose of the tithe. But now we come into today in the context of the New Testament. Well, how does this apply to us today? Does the tithe apply to us today? Here's my twofold answer. If you're asking that question, not with the motivation of curiosity, but just so that you can check a box, you're part of the problem like Israel was. Number two, I would argue that it does not apply because Jesus has sacrificially and perfectly fulfilled all of the requirements of the Mosaic Covenant, ushering the church into a new covenant. 
So when we consider the New Testament, it doesn't really land on a hard number or figure. Everybody's like, nice. Don't have to tithe. All right, here it is. I would argue, I would argue that the tithe is easier than what the New Testament calls us to do. I would argue that the tithe from the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law, the 10%, that's easier than what we see in the New Testament. And I'll tell you why. Now, we don't have a number or a box to check off. Now, it is rooted specifically in generosity as a result of a heart shaped by grace. It's one of the ways in which we demonstrate that we have been changed by God's grace. So the question is not whether or not the tithe exists. It's whether or not you're generous. Not everybody likes that one. All right. 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So remember when we looked at 2 Corinthians, Paul associates giving generously as part of our spiritual formation. 2 Corinthians 9, Paul says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And when we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, right, you've heard maybe some pastors say, how much are you supposed to give until it hurts? I would argue that you are to give until it's cheerful. See, it's harder. (laughs) 1 Corinthians 16, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So we don't give to get. We give so that we would be entrusted to give more. This issue that Israel has where they think they're justified in disregarding God because of their circumstance is the same one you and I face today. See, some of you think that you are justified in disregarding God and disobeying God because of your circumstance. When in reality, your circumstance might be the thing that God is using to show you your disobedience. Disregarding God reveals Hearts shaped by something apart from God. And so now we come into delighting in God. This text was tough, or is tough, for a number of reasons. One of which is because maybe you, like me, have seen televangelists or local preachers say some really unwise and dumb things. Right? Where they embrace, for instance, The prosperity gospel. Many of you have even heard of the prosperity gospel, which is totally and absolutely flawed, right? Plant your seed so that you will get all the things. They would even quote Malachi 3. If you read the text, God blesses you. If you don't give, he will not bless you. Then what was the point of Jesus? 
You see, something like the prosperity gospel actually turns the gospel of Jesus upside down, not to mention it leads the church astray because it is focused and centered around our selfish desires. Here we go. Creflo Dollar once said, when we pray, believing that we have already received what we are praying, God has no choice but to make our prayers come to pass. It is a key to getting results as a Christian. All right, not convinced. Here we go. Good old Kenneth Copeland, right, in one of his books from 1978 goes on to say, there are certain laws governing prosperity revealed in God's word. Faith causes them to function. So in these quotes, right, what these individuals are saying is, one, that faith isn't something granted to us by God. In fact, it's something enacted by our own will. In addition to that, as we make it come to pass, our prayers are self-centered. In other words, God has to uh, answer our selfish prayers, our selfish desires. They wouldn't word it that way, but that God has to answer our desires because, man, we're willing it to happen. It's faulty theology. It's heresy. So when you hear these preachers, don't be fooled. In fact, question whether or not their, their message even has a redemptive focus. Because what I read in God's word is that God entered into human history as the man, Jesus Christ, who left his riches and became poor for our sake so that we might be rich in him. Meaning that more than anything, Jesus is the one who meets our deepest need. As a result of our salvation, our hearts are now changed, and generosity is a metric, a metric of a changed heart. It is the result of repentance that bears fruit where we do not hoard, rather we give generously, where we don't give to get, but we give so that we would give more because we are entrusted with more, where we give generously because we first gave ourselves to Jesus, the ultimate example of generosity. And so I asked you the question, why does God choose money in Malachi 3? Because it exposes our heart idols. It exposes the idols of our heart. See, oftentimes when we're talking about money in the church, one of two things tend to come up. You tend to have on one side individuals who may be self-righteous. I give, I like checking boxes, that's good. Look how much I give. God is pleased with me because I give, I'm cool. There's this self-righteous, arrogant posture in your giving. And so as a result of that, we can switch all the way to the other side and there's individuals who are self-indulgent. In other words, you just heard me say, no, there is no figure or number in the New Testament. And some of you are gonna register and say, oh, therefore I don't have to give, right? Because we're under grace, not the law, right? Like that's not how it works. Do you think your disobedience doesn't have consequences? When we give generously, we're actually guarding ourselves from the love of money. We guard ourselves from greed, all of us. You, me, all of us have a greed problem, we have a keeping problem, we have a hoarding problem, we have a withholding problem, all of us. 
And in Malachi 3, Israel is trying to deceive God in order to justify their disobedience. Look at what's going on around us. It's a greed problem. It's a distrust problem. And on top of that, Israel didn't have malls or Amazon, and they're still hoarding, right? Like, they're experiencing devastation, and they're still hoarding. So you and I can't say, well, it's the culture. No, dude, it's because we have a greedy heart. Our greed flows from self-righteous or self-indulgent hearts that seek satisfaction in our money and in our possessions. And we worship them by giving more toward them. Listen to Paul to Timothy. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. This is the scary part. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. That's scary. That their heart's desires have taken over, that they've wandered from the faith. So why does God use money? Because it exposes the idols of our hearts. Sure, we might not be under the Mosaic law, but that doesn't mean that God's word isn't doing the same thing to us right now that it did to Israel then. All of this is meant to bring about two things, conviction and repentance. When it comes to conviction, man, what is it that the Lord is is stirring and surfacing in you? Are you living disobediently? Have you forgotten his goodness? Are you disobeying his word? Are you living apathetically in this particular area? Are you disobedient toward God? Whatever it is he's stirring and surfacing in you, here's the second part, repent. That's the same invitation that he gives to Israel. Repent, it's God's kindness to you, because you belong to him through Jesus, not so that you would belong to him. God's call to to tithe for Israel and for us to give generously removes our stuff from its prime place in our hearts. And practically, while we might not be under the, the, the strict rule of the tithe, that doesn't mean the purpose of giving doesn't exist. It's still for the purpose of supporting ministry for local missions and relieving poverty and showing hospitality. Those things are still priorities in God's kingdom because God does not change. Does your disobedience keep you from delighting in God? I'll ask it again. Does your disobedience keep you from delighting in God? Because delighting in God is the result of a heart changed by him. And so as we consider the text one last time, if you're concerned about whether or not you're robbing God, I would say then look to your giving. Is it cheerful? Is it generous? Is it sacrificial? Why do we need to keep looking at money? Because it reveals your idols. And that alone displays our disobedience toward God. That is evidence, or can be evidence, of our forgetfulness of his goodness. 
It is evidence, or it can be evidence and proof that our hearts have been shaped by something other than God's grace for us. And if the pushback is still, what does this have to do with Jesus? Why does tithing or giving or money have to do with Jesus? Tithing or giving has everything to do with Jesus because it exposes a heart problem that he came to die for. So let us not forget his grace. Because of our ungenerous hearts, because of our stubborn hearts, what we deserve is God's curse. But instead, Jesus, the ultimate giver, endured the curse of the cross for us. That Jesus became poor for our sake so that we might be rich in grace. Listen, the more we grasp the grace of God, the more we will excel in the grace of giving. God is a giver, and we know this not just because Jesus gives us grace, but because he is grace. And we, as a redeemed people, are evidence of that. Jesus was sinless so that we might become rich. You, Christian, are rich in grace. By his grace, you are now called sons and daughters. By his grace, you have God's favor. By his grace, your sins have been forgiven. By his grace, You have confident access to God the Father. By his grace, Jesus did all of this for us by impoverishing himself. So when it comes to giving, it's not a measure of our wallets, but what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about grace. Money is so personal and it's it's so, you know, uncomfortable because money reveals where our hearts are truly at, where our idols are carefully tucked away, and where our hope truly lies. So Christian, where are you disobeying God? Where are you distrusting Him? Is it in generosity? Where you don't trust the Lord? Where you don't give generously? or you give self-righteously, or you want to position and posture yourself regarding self-indulgence. But maybe for you, maybe you are giving generously, maybe you are giving regularly. Hey, praise God, this text still applies to you. Why? What was the problem in Israel? Disobedience. This is just the example he uses to reveal their disobedience. So perhaps you're giving generously. Praise God and examine your heart. Are you in disobedience? No te hagas. God offers you the same thing that he's offering Israel. Hey, repent, return to me, and I'm going to return to you. That is his kindness for you. That is his kindness for us. And for the non-Christian, if you're on that, like, I don't, I don't know, I got to tell you, we're going to talk about money, and you are in the worst debt possible. You're in spiritual debt one that you cannot get yourself out of no matter how good you attempt to be. And if that's been your goal, how's it working? Yet there is one who can cancel your debt with his credit, and his name is Jesus. And I want you to come to know him. 
Not so that you're better, but so that you're new. Not so that everything is butterflies and rainbows, but joyful in spite of your circumstance. Because it is only Jesus who can truly meet your deepest need. So church, generosity is a reflection of a heart that has been shaped by grace. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this afternoon. It reminds us of the generosity of Jesus who became flesh and dwelled among us. That by faith in him, we can be reconciled to you. Recipients of a grace that we could never earn and free and forgiven from the guilt and shame of our sin. Holy Spirit, would you, would you surface our disobedience? Would you reveal where we are not trusting you? And would you forgive us for disregarding you and using our circumstances as justification for disobedience? If we're honest, our hearts are weak and full of idols such as greed. So today, would you remind us of your grace for us so that we would walk in obedience, so that we would experience true change, including in the grace of giving. May we be marked by generosity because we are motivated by the grace that you provide.